if you are the kind of person who uses the internet, you'll probably agree with me that one of the worst mistakes you can make is to get in an argument with someone online, right? Like, it really doesn't matter what the topic is. It doesn't matter who that person is. If you get in an argument with somebody else online, odds are at some point you're probably going to regret it. I think this is one of the most interesting things that Facebook has done in the past 10 years to, to modern day life is it's made you get angry at people you don't even know, right? Like one of your friends will post something and you'll comment and then, you know, like it was a college friend and then one of their friends who they went to third grade with will argue back with you. And so you've never met this person. They went to third grade with a friend you went to college with, and now all of a sudden you're embroiled in this argument with this person you've never met, and they're calling you names, and you're calling them names, and you're researching, and you're calling the websites they use bias, and you're calling the websites they use bias, and you're arguing with each other, and you're name-calling, and all of it was about, like, fantasy football, right? Like, I mean, it wasn't even that big of a deal to begin with, but it became a big deal, and you called each other names, and you blocked each other, and you vowed to never speak to each other again, and you don't even remember what their name was to begin with. And that was just like a minor thing, you know, because it happens, and it happens politically, it happens ideologically, it happens philosophically, and it happens religiously, too. It happens like crazy, and it was really hard, like when Facebook really started to take off, it was really hard for me to see those religious debates happening and, and not get involved. You see, because what would happen is, is I would see them and I'd think, I'm a pastor. I have a degree in this. I better let these people know what they think. And I'd start getting involved and I'd start, you know, sharing my thoughts and, and opinions and, and trying to get involved in the arguments and eventually I'd become embroiled in, the, in these conversations, right? And you know that feeling, or you've seen it, or even if you've never been on the internet, maybe you've read the Ledger Independent comment line. Like it was the, nope, nobody's read it. Cool. All right, so um, we'll just move on. But you know, like you know about the, the thing that happens when people just start to get mad behind a keyboard. Because what's so interesting to me is that oftentimes when you have a conversation with someone in person, it goes much differently, right? Like you would never walk up to someone who had a t-shirt on that represented the political candidate who differed from you, and you might like smirk at them, you might like make a comment, but you're not going to engage in a full-out political debate in that moment, right? Like, you're just going to walk on by and think to yourself. But online, when you see the meme or you see the picture and you're going to be like, I'm going to tell this person everything they need to know. Right? Don't lie in church. The Lord knows. It happens. And it happens all the time. And it's the weirdest thing. And so for a long time for me, especially when it came to debates about God and about Jesus, I was always like, i got to jump in on this. And I have the hardest time because I'm opinionated and I would have the hardest time staying away from it. And I quickly realized over the course of, you know, a long time because it wasn't really that quick and I'm a little slow, that it really wasn't that productive to try and jump into these arguments all the time. Because what kept happening over and over again is that you butt heads with people who are 100% certain without a shadow of a doubt that they are absolutely, undoubtedly right. 
And it really doesn't matter what you say or how you prove your point or what you do or how you think differently or how you try to approach it. They are right and you are wrong. And so as I kept having these conversations with people, I started to realize two things. I started to realize, number one, that some people just may not ever change their mind. But I started to realize, number two, that I think part of following God, and I think part of following Jesus, part of being a Christian, means that we're not always going to be 100% certain. Now, I want you to hear me out, because like, as I'm writing this sermon, as I was preparing for the sermon, I was afraid that someone would leave today hearing me having said that you don't have to believe in God. And I, and I want you to know that like, I believe in God. And I am fully confident that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, is fully man, was fully man, is fully God, all of those things. But I've also come to a point in my life when I'm comfortable knowing that I cannot 100% prove it to you. And it took me a long time to get there. And I understand that people might have a problem with that. But I believe it to be 100% true, but I can't 100% prove it to you. And I'm all right with that. You see, I'm, I'm all right with that because I don't think that that was the point. Because if God wanted to, he could go and write in the sky, I am real, deal with it. Because if God wanted to, he could make it very clear and very obvious to all of us that he was here and very, and very true. But he doesn't. Because part of this whole thing was he wanted to create room for doubt so that people could have this discussion. And so first I want to say to you, like, if you're not sure, I want you to know that's okay. I want you to know that you're not the only person who doubts. I want you to know that you're not the only person who's not sure. And I want you to know that I took solace in this in, from the weirdest place. Um, there's a chef in France named Chef Michael Bra, um, which is my new favorite chef name. Um, it's a French name, Bra. And um, Chef Bra leads one of the... It's a joke, people. Just relax. B-R-A-S is how you spell it in, in French. I assume you can pronounce it however you want in, friend, in French. Go for your own joke there. Okay? Um, but Chef Michael, we'll call him, Chef Michael owns a restaurant that has three Michelin stars, which why Michelin majors in two things, tires and restaurants, is something I'll never understand. We'll just keep moving on. Like, I got nothing for you today. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm glad you're here. Welcome to Highland Christian Church. Why Michelin? Let's try this again because that was really good. Why Michelin majors in only two things, tires and restaurants, is beyond me. All right, and so, so what happens is if your restaurant achieves one Michelin star in its lifetime, that's an achievement. For your restaurant to achieve two Michelin stars in its lifetime is a major achievement. For your restaurant to be a three Michelin star restaurant is a very rare accomplishment. In fact, in the country of France, you know, like one of the most well-known dining countries in the whole world, there's only 27 restaurants that have three Michelin stars. And so after Chef Michael's restaurant had been a, a three Michelin star restaurant for almost 20 years, the restaurant is so popular that it has a two-year waiting list to get reservations to eat there. 
Chef Michael contacted the Michelin dining people and let them know that he would be returning the three Michelin stars. And he said, I'm tired of dealing with the pressure of having to get it right. Because you see, in order to keep his three Michelin stars, he had to be aware that three times per year, someone from Michelin would be there to inspect. And there's a, a several dozen things that they were checking for at the restaurant. And if any one of those things were wrong, he could very well lose one of his stars, and it could be bad news and all of this. And he said it was no longer enjoyable for him. It was no longer something that he could do. And so he just simply chose to return the Michelin stars and say, I don't want this ranking anymore. He said, I don't want to have to be perfect. I just want to be a chef. And I saw that story, and I realized that that's what I started doing a couple of years ago with my faith, is I realized that I don't have to have every answer every time. Is that I know that there are people in my life and friends who I love dearly who don't believe like I do, who can challenge me on things, and I can say, you know, that's a good question, and honestly, I don't know. And I'm just dealing with it, man. You know, you bring up a good point, and I don't have an answer, but I'm okay with not having an answer. Rather than trying to argue back and forth, rather than trying to continue to, to push the issue, I have, in a sense, just given up the ghost of saying, I have to have it perfect, and I just say, here's, here's the deal. I don't know. I'm giving it my best shot. And so when I start to answer the question of why I believe in God, I, I don't have to have it all right. I'm just going to give it the best shot I can and know that there's not the pressure that other people think there is. He said, I took this class in college called the Philosophy of Religion, and it was an entire three-hour college class, three hours a week for an entire semester about all of the ways you can prove in the existence of God and, and the cosmological argument and the teleological argument and the ontological argument and all the different arguments you can make and all the ways you can prove atheists wrong. And I was like learning all these and writing them down, and the whole time I'm like, man, i got to get all these right. And now looking back on it, I'm like, man, I don't, I don't have to prove this. I don't know if this is really the way this is supposed to go. Because hear me out, I have no doubt that God is real. But I don't know that the pressure is always on me to prove it. And I don't know that the pressure is always on you to prove it. You see, there are, there are atheists who don't believe that God exists. And there are agnostics who don't know that they're sure whether or not God exists. And what they want is they want for us to put God in a box and be able to prove it one way or the other. And I don't know if that's really what God wants. And I could be wrong. I've been wrong twice in my life before. But I'm really mostly worried about um, the dyslexic, insomniac, agnostic. Poor guy. He lays awake every night wondering if there is a dog. Oh, my God. You guys, is it early? Is that what's happening here? Like, was there a time change today and I didn't realize it? The dyslexic, insomniac, agnostic. You'll get it later, okay? That's the best one I had today, too. So here's, here's what we're going to do. When we answer the question of why do I believe what I believe, I'm going to tell you some things that work for me, and, and they might work for you, but I want you to know this. I want you to know that they might not hold up in the court of law, 
a professor in a college could laugh them back down. It might not work on a research paper, but I'm not worried about proving it right to anybody else. And I hope for you that this, this works and this, and this challenges you on some level to start thinking through why it is you believe what you believe and to start finding and working through why you believe what you believe. Because here, here's, here's what I want people to know, and here's, here's what I challenge people on. I don't, I don't think any atheist can be 100% certain that God doesn't exist. Because I don't think anyone's ever made a decision in their life with 100% certainty. Think back to every decision you've made in your life, whether it, was, whether it was a major decision like whether or not to get married or who to get married to, right? Like even on the day that I married Whitney, there was like that shred of doubt that I was like, should I be getting married? Whitney would tell you that there was like a 40% shred of doubt about whether or not she should be getting married. That actually sounds generous. It might have been like an 80% shred of doubt. Um, you know, like maybe you chose a college and you're going, I don't know if this is the college I should be picking. I don't know if this is the major I should be picking. Every decision you've made in your life, there has this, there has been some amount of doubt, but it comes to faith, and there are people who will tell you, you have to be 100% certain. Like, no, you don't. There's room for doubt. There's room for you to ask questions. There's room for you to be okay. A friend of mine who is an atheist, who actually um, some of you know well around here as an atheist, um, I've invited him here several times just kind of like a, as a casual thing. And he told me, he said, well, here's kind of what I believe. Like, would people at your church be okay with that? And I was like, dude, as far as I know, no one in my church believes the same thing that I do. It's like, there's no rules at our church. Like, you believe what you believe, and we teach what we teach, but people believe different things. People make their own choices. You know, as a church, we teach that God is the one true God and that Jesus is the way to salvation, but it's not like we bar the doors for people who don't believe that. We teach that baptism is the only way to Jesus and that that's the only way to heaven, but people come to our church who don't believe what we believe because they want to be a part of our community, and we hope that they change their mind. And so here's, here's why I believe the things that I believe. One of the reasons that I believe that God is real is because if you were to open your Bible to the very first page, the first line in your Bible goes like this. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first line in your Bible doesn't say, and then there was God. The first line in your Bible doesn't say the reasons you should believe in God are as follows. The first line in your Bible doesn't say the reasons you know there are God are A, B, and C. The first line in your Bible just assumes that you understand that there is a God. There's no line, there's no rhyme or reason for the writers of the Bible to try and argue for the existence of God because they are, they're, they're trying to say, you got nothing to prove. God exists. In almost every other world religion, in almost every other cult, in almost every other false dichotomy or religion or choice, you will find arguments and proof in their, in their sacred writings for why their religion is the right one. The Bible makes no case. Because the Bible stands on its own and says, listen, it's it. Like, this is all you got. In the beginning, God was there and he created the universe. There's no need to argue anything else. 
And it's such an important thing that I, I think we pass over, and we pass over it because, because what we start to do is we start reading into Genesis 1, and we're going, well, it says that he created the earth, that he created in seven days and 6,000 years and 4.6 billion years. What really happened here? What, what's going on? And like, you're missing the point. What it says is that God was there and that he spoke the earth into existence. It makes no argument as to whether or not he even existed because he just was there. And so many people are trying to answer so many other questions that they miss that God is answering the question in itself and saying, I'm here and I spoke this whole thing into existence. And there's another area of controversy that I wade into occasionally about this topic when it comes to how old the earth is. And I always answer the question with, the earth is somewhere between 6,000 and 4.6 billion years old because um, I'm one who always takes a stand on the hard issues. All I know is that God spoke the earth into existence. But this is another reason that I believe that God is real, is because if you look around at the earth, if you look around at what happens on the earth, if you look at creation, if you look at, 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 at the world, you can see evidence of a creator. One of my new favorite evidences of creator is the pistol shrimp and i just found this video recently and i've watched it more times than i care to admit because i find it awesome but there's a shrimp that lives at the bottom of a sea called the pistol shrimp and i want to give you this caveat because i showed this video to someone recently and they had questions the pistol shrimp has has a claw that looks and acts like a pistol but the sound effects in the video are not real just, just to make it clear, okay? So watch this video, check out the pistol shrimp, and then we'll, we'll talk more about it. So I see the story of an animal like the pistol shrimp. And I see beauty in creation that points to, to something speaking it into existence. 
The fact that that tiny little animal can cock its, cock its claw and shoot a bubble out at 4,000 degrees Celsius to stun another animal enough to hunt it and eat it. Speaks creation, a creator, someone who had in mind something much different than just a natural evolution of things. There's an old-fashioned argument called the watchmaker argument, and the argument goes, if you look at a watch, you always assume that there's someone who had to make such an intricate piece, and so the 2017 version would be, you would never hold an iPhone in your hand and assume that it just appeared out of nowhere. Some of you are spoiled, rotten kids, and you just assume they appeared out of nowhere, but when you look at an iPhone with all of its intricacies and the way that it works, you know that there had to be a designer behind it. The same with a fish who lives thousands of feet at the bottom of the sea and whose hunting mechanism is so intricately designed that it can shoot a bubble that is 4,000 degrees Celsius. In Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist says, when I, can, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you would care for him? You see, because you can look at the beauty of creation. Look at the intricacy of creation and you see something different. You see something unique. Something you would have never expected. One of the, peop one of the things that people ask oftentimes when they're trying to refute the existence of God is they'll say, okay, if there is a God, why is there bad in the world? And it happens so often, um, like a lot of times on, online and stuff, somebody will take a picture of a beautiful sunset or they'll take a picture of something scenic and they'll say, how can you look at this and not believe in a God? And, and I've seen it more than once because people are rude. Um, they'll post a picture of like a starving child or someone standing over a casket or something evil and they'll say, how can you look at this picture and say how is there, there is a God? And I, and I always always want to respond to a question like that. How can you see any good in the world and think that there, that comes from anything but God? Because people want to ask, if there is evil in the world, how is there a God? But my question is, if there is no God, why is there any good in the world? Because if there is no source of good, then why does anyone have a reason to be good? Because if we're talking evolution, survival of the fittest, why would anyone be kind to another person? Because if we're just talking the, the human race, the rat race, why would anyone ever stop to help? Right? In Psalm chapter 23, at the end, in verse 6, David says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Because when you're a follower of God, when you're a Christian, what follows you is goodness and mercy. Not that everything good happens to you, but what's supposed to ooze from you, what's supposed to come from you is goodness and mercy. Because the people who, who follow God, the people who worship God, are the people who give goodness and mercy. And so the question isn't how does God allow evil? The question is if there is no God... Why is there any good? You've probably seen the old quote from Mr. Rogers who, uh, as a boy, said that he, he told his mom he couldn't bear to see any more pain, any more disasters and fires and all those things. And she said, no, Fred, look at the people running. 
And she said, don't look at the people running away from the fire. Look at the people running in to help. She said, look at the good. Look at the good. You see, if you were to ask me to talk about the existence of God, one of the first things that I would tell you is that, man, there are good people in this world. In the last month, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma have devastated the southern part of this country. But you don't have to look very far to know that there is good in this world. And you also don't have to look very far to know that the giving of churches has outgiven FEMA and most other programs, some sources say, by a ratio of three to one. Because goodness and mercy follows those who follow God. And I'd say this because we're probably on the right track. Because to be honest, for some of us, this is the choice that we make to bring goodness and mercy into the world. Just last week, I got a text from a friend who's not a believer who asked me to do something. And um, he asked me to do something, so maybe he was just trying to butter me up, but I, I choose to believe that he wasn't because I needed it as a sermon illustration. So um, <clears throat> he said, I want you to do this for me. And he said, it's because you're the most patient man I know. And I was like, uh, new phone, who's this? Um, but I, I, I chuckled to myself because I'm not really all that patient of a person. But I loved the fact that as one of the few believers that I think Sam probably interacts with on a regular basis, that he thought I was the most patient person he knew. Because through me, what he saw was goodness and mercy. Because through me, what he saw was patience. Because hopefully, in the slightest little bit, what he saw was evidence of God in me. And you all know me well enough to know that that's not the kind of story that I tell very often. But this is, this is evidence of who God is. It's not the teleological argument of, of understanding the space-time continuum or anything crazy like that. The argument for who God is is an argument of what God's doing in our lives. And so the last thing I, I think, if you were to ask me why I believe in God, um, I have to confess, this is the most selfish of the arguments. So if you think less of me after this argument, I'm cool with that. I admit that this is a little petty. But the last thing, like if somebody were to refute all of these arguments and they were to say, okay, now what? I would say, all right, so I have to ask you a question. And I'd say, so I believe that God spoke the earth into existence that um, he created human beings, that human beings rebelled against him, that the punishment for rebellion was, was an eternity in hell, but instead he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross and save us, and the, and the reward, if we follow his son Jesus, is an eternity in heaven versus an eternity in hell, a lifetime of suffering, torment, eternal reward. And they say, yes. And I say, okay, that's what I believe. And I say, and you believe that none of that's true, and when we die, we just take a long dirt nap. Yes. So, okay, if I'm wrong, oh well. And if you're wrong, this could be bad. 
And I realize that that sounds terribly elementary and that from, from your pastor you would expect a much deeper, more sound theologically answer, but there's this part of me that when everything else fades away, that when everything else burns to the side and I'm thinking, okay, maybe this falls apart, maybe this isn't true, maybe none of this works, I'm thinking, you know what, I'm not really missing out on that much. I mean, maybe if we got this all wrong and I spent my entire life teaching my kids to be, to be kind, just, good people, if I spent my entire life trying to serve other people, maybe if I was the Pied Piper leading y'all down this path towards Jesus and it turns out this whole Jesus thing was a myth, like, did we really miss out on that much? Did we really miss out on that much by trying to help people find meaning and, and, and truth in their lives? Did we really miss out on that much by trying to serve our neighbor and love people around us? No. No, we didn't. In fact, if you look at Psalm chapter 14, it says this. It says, not that. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. And it's simply just an answer to a question of, of us to say, listen, this is a risk I'm willing to take. I very well could be wrong. I told you already, I've been wrong twice today. But it's a risk that I'm willing to take for me to say, listen, there is enough goodness in what Jesus teaches. There is enough, there is enough positivity in what it means to follow Jesus that I will choose to lead my kids and to lead my family down this path that I will choose to dedicate my life to leading a church full of people, to reaching more people down this path, because I believe that this is real. And because I believe, beyond even these base things, I believe that there are ways that I can show you that God is real and that God is true. And I believe these things to be true. Do I believe them beyond a shadow of a doubt? No. There are times when I'm not sure. There are times, and harder times, and tougher times when I ask more questions than I'm willing to admit. But I hold on to these because I know what I believe to be the opposite. And to be totally honest with you, in my own personal story, in the story of my family, there have been times when things happened that don't have an explanation. And it's hard to tell you that because there have also been times in my life when there have been things that didn't happen like I wanted them to that make me think, man, if God would have come through there, if God would have just worked here, if God would have answered that prayer, but then there have been times in my life when God totally came through when God answered the prayer, there have been times at the stoplight when I said, God, why don't you? And minutes later, the prayer was answered. There have been times in the hospital when I said, God, would you? And he did. Just like there were times when I said, God, would you? And he didn't. But I know this to be sure. Because at 30 years of age, I've seen it enough in my life and in some of your lives with enough confidence to know that there is something beyond this life that our foes are many, and that there are so many things in this life that rise against us. I, I will admit that to the hilt, that there are things that work against us. 
But I promise you, no matter how many doubts in our life rise, no matter how many things try to take over in our life, that there is a God who is always faithful. That there is a God who is always by our side. Even when we're not sure he's there, he is there. Always. Will you stand and sing with us?